I've always like heard about like the, the angels and the trumpets going like, oh, hallelujah. I don't want to really wear a crown because you'll mess up my hair, so. As a kid, I definitely thought about diamonds and jewels, like, you know, the pearly gates. The streets would go, eh, I don't really care about all that. You know, mansions and stuff, eh, okay, maybe, I'll, I'll take a mansion. Like a big dance party, I think that'd be super fun, like with updated music all the time. Everyone's like jamming out to their own thing, to jamming out to Jesus kind of thing. And if heaven could be just like singing with a choir and like dancing our faces off, I am so there. It'd be cool to hang out with, with Greg, Boyd in heaven, but I don't know that he'll be there. Um, I picture a pretty good feast of, <laughs> of like the best food. Eating what you want to eat and drinking what you want to drink. I, I hope there's really good coffee, like really good. Of course, like just eating. I think in heaven it's like I'm perfectly at home here. Like there's no, nothing to worry about. People know and love me. That I get to see my parents again. They passed away about 30 years ago. Knowing the people that you loved here, that you get to love them and be a part of them there, like those relationships would continue forever and ever. Awesome. Woo! Heaven. So good morning. Uh, so my name is David. Uh, my family and I have been hanging around here for about a decade and just love this place. Love all you people. Love getting the chance to open up the word with you every once in a while. And so we are in week four of our non-perishable series. And this is a series on death. <laughs> so if you're a visitor, you lucked out. Um, <laughs> this is, we do this all, this is every week. We just talk about death. Uh, so I, I want to I kind of get you up to speed here. Um, so week one, Greg talked about some of the misconceptions of death. And one of the misconceptions he dealt with was that um, oftentimes we kind of uh, like dismiss death as not a big deal. Um, and he talked about how a misconception is that scripturally death is an enemy that needs and will be finally defeated. And so he talked about this misperception of death sometimes in the church. And then the next week he talked about the intermediate space. So, uh, so the Bible talks about how when we die, something happens, which is life after death. But then the Bible talks way more about what happens after that, which one of my favorite theologians, N.T. Wright, talks about that time as life after life after death. You got that? So we got life after death, which is kind of that intermediate space that Greg talked about a few weeks ago. And then today we're going to talk about life after life after death, where it was, which that's what the Bible calls heaven, which we're going to have some fun. And then last week, um, our friend Oshida talked about death anxiety. And who doesn't love being at a church where we just deal head on with death anxiety as a group? Uh, feels like it should be a therapy session, but the goal was to say, how do we practice the fact that Jesus is enough? Because if Jesus is enough, I don't have to be anxious about death. And so what we're going to be looking at today is heaven, which I, I think I scored the good week. Uh, so the, top, the title for the sermon is Ripples of Heaven, which we're going to get back to that, and I think it'll make sense at some point, at least that's the goal. Now, I take this really seriously when I have the chance to come and preach. Um, like, I do all the things preachers are supposed to do. Um, 
So I studied the Bible. I learned some Greek and Hebrew words that I'm going to share with you so you feel smarter when you leave. And I like looked at historical context. But then I did the thing that I think is kind of like next level preaching homework. Um, I was binge watching uh, The Good Place. Anybody watch that show? Now, if, if you don't hear anything else, just know, watch that. You'll kind of get the same message as what you get today. But it's actually super funny. Um, but here's the deal. The goal today is to kind of zoom out 30,000 feet up to get a picture of what does God say the true hope of heaven is? What is it all about? And there's a lot of questions that come with this. Like, questions like, okay, um, does God have a plan for earth also? Does God have a plan for earth? Is the plan rejection or renewal? Um, when I grew up, the most, one of the most common questions I would hear in church or uh, when we were on mission trip and we were doing evangelism was the question was, will you go to heaven when you die? Anybody ever heard that one? Will you go to heaven when you die? And the thing we're going to wrestle with today is whether that's the right question or if the more appropriate question is, will you be ready for heaven when it arrives? Will you go to heaven when you die or will you be ready for heaven when it arrives. So we're going to dive into some scripture today. We're going to talk about some of my own experience. We're going to talk about video games. We're going to talk about philosophy. We're going to talk about um, kind of why I have a rock up here. And if you're in the front few rows, beware. Um, so all these different things. Um, but the first thing we're going to do is look at Revelation 21. So for the three people that brought their Bible, you can open up to Revelation 21. Otherwise, look on the screen. Um, then I saw... This is John talking, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now, it's interesting, within the uh, ancient Near Eastern context, the sea was a symbol. The sea was a symbol for death, for turmoil, for disaster, and ultimately for separation. Because well, what the sea represented in the ancient world was this thing that divided one group of people from another group of people. And if you're divided from another group of people, oftentimes the thing that naturally happens because of the separation is prejudice. And so in the final kingdom that is being announced here, God is saying that the things that separate us, the things that create the prejudice are going to be no more, amen? Is that not good news? We need it. So come, Lord Jesus. And then he continues. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I want you to notice, it says, the city came down, it didn't say we went up. Interesting. Okay, and then it keeps going. It talks about how we're a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. That the most common metaphor of a relationship with God in Scripture is a marriage. That what, what a relationship with God is supposed to look like is like a beautiful marriage, which is also why marriage as it exists now is supposed to be the living, breathing example to the world of what a true relationship with God is supposed to be like, which is quite a high calling for those married folks in the room. So, good luck. Um, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place, which is the word skene, which we'll come back to, is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, 
or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Amen, amen, and amen. That there is something about this new heaven and new earth that comes down that the very nature of it dismisses mourning and sadness and crying and pain and death. And if you're having trouble getting passionate about heaven, that gets passion. Come on. Then he keeps going. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then Jesus says to John, it is done. I'm the alpha. I'm the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children finally. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Didn't hear any amens on that last part. (laughs) So here, little caveat on that last verse. Um, A few years ago, Greg did a sermon called Hell in a Nutshell. Um, And if you are interested to get more information on what that last verse is about and what hell is about and some ideas around that, that is Greg's problem. Um, So that was a couple years ago. Feel free to go back and listen to that or he'll be here next week. You can just pepper him during his sermon. Um, And uh, the only thing I'll say is that he makes a case um, that that there's a biblical uh, reason to Uh, understand hell as something other than eternal conscious torment, which is, I think, what many of us have been grown up to think about it as. And so if you're interested in a way to think about that other than that, uh, I'd encourage you to listen to that sermon. So hell in a nutshell. All right. Now, here's our problem, and we have a number of them, but the first one is uh, the picture in Revelation is a very earthy perspective on heaven. Like, it's filled with all the things I would expect because it's heaven coming down. It's not us being evacuated. And so because it's so earthy, there's, there's this sense that, like, creation itself is going to be a part of what God ultimately is going to do. The challenge is, like, like a couple years ago, and I think this is pretty representative, uh, Time Magazine did a survey, and they, they asked two questions. The first question was, do you believe in the resurrection? And of the group who said, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, over two-thirds of them said the resurrection is just spiritual. That the only thing we're looking forward to is kind of a spiritual evacuation project of resurrection. And, And so we have this challenge that, on the one hand, Revelation 21 seems to paint this picture of a very earthy heaven, a very earthy redemption that God is going to do, but there are a lot of different perspectives, and I have a hunch that if we went around this room, kind of like the video showed, there would be as many different opinions and perspectives as there are people in the room. Now, I was uh, talking to my son this week, who's eight, about heaven, and I was saying, so Noah, do you think you'd want to go to heaven? He goes, "Mm -mm, mm-mm, mm-mm, and I thought to myself, I have failed. I'm a pastor and a dad, and dang it. Uh, So I was asking him, like, Noah, why wouldn't you want to go to heaven? And he gives me the typical eight-year-old response. He says, Dad, I heard there aren't screens there. (laughs) Which, if you have little kids, you know that is, like, the ultimate. So I I think we worked through it and talked about how God created scientists who made a PlayStation, so maybe they'll bring it. Um, And, but pray for us. Uh, So, uh, 
uh, all that to say, there's kind of this lack of specificity on what we mean when we say heaven. Like it's just, we're not really quite sure. And I think some of it is because a lot of us have baggage around heaven. Like we've been told certain things about it that maybe they, 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 they lined up with one piece of scripture, but it didn't line up with the rest of it. And I've got some baggage around heaven. I, um, I, I grew up going to this church in Minnetonka and it was, it was an incredible church. It was the place where I came to know God. It was the place where I learned um, how to follow him. It was the place where I went on missions trips. It was the place where I led vacation Bible schools. It was the place where I, I learned how to tell somebody about the love of Jesus. It's where some of my best friends that I met then are still good friends now. And, and yet, this church had some baggage. And, and oftentimes, we don't even know when we inherit the baggage until later. Um, and what I found out later was that the pastor of this church in the 1950s was a man named Tim LaHaye. And um, if you don't know Tim LaHaye, he was a pastor, a speaker, and an author. And the, the most well-known books he wrote were a series of 12 books called the Left Behind series. Anybody read the Left Behind series? Yes. Okay. So here's the thing. They sold 65 million copies Gosh, and they were made into two movies. Um, so if, you, if you're a Nicolas Cage fan, he was in the most recent one. It's terrible, but enjoy. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. In my church library growing up, like, there, there was like a whole section for Left Behind. Like we had so many copies of all of them, and I devoured them. I ate them up. I, I read each one of them. Honestly, this is like uh, reading these books is what like, made me uh, an avid reader, which is bizarre to me, but it did. It, it got me fascinated with it. And the, the, the basic premise of these books is based on a theological uh, position uh, called the rapture. So it's this perspective that what God is going to do at the end of time is evacuate people that he's going to evacuate from earth the people that are following him and bring them somewhere else. And so the goal is, how do I make sure I get evacuated when the evacuation time comes? And I, I, it, honestly, it's frightening. Like, I, I remember reading it, and I felt like I got resaved every chapter because I want to make sure... I want to make sure I'm in when this whole thing goes down. And then, and then I, I remember going to college, and in one of my uh, first theology classes, one of the professors mentioned that the rapture is one of many positions. And I remember thinking, get behind me, Satan. That can't be true. That's not one. That is the position. That is what's going to happen. And, and it began this process of deconstruction. This process of deconstruction around uh, what is heaven all about? What is the hope actually in heaven? And I, I, I want to just say this because I've talked to enough of you around here to know this is true, um, that there are a number of people in this room that are wrestling with a process of deconstruction, that you grew up with a faith that doesn't fit anymore. You grew up thinking things were a certain way and it doesn't seem to land the same way anymore. You've been learning something new, and, and you're trying to figure out, can I walk forward in this place that feels so disorienting sometimes? I've heard it referred to as liminal space, which is, it's like threshold space. It's like if you're walking through a doorway, it's like I've exited a room, but I've yet to enter the new one yet. And I guess I just want to say to those of you who might be feeling that, you're going to be okay you're going to be okay. But in the same light, you can't do this alone. You can't walk that process by yourself, which is why we do things here like 
growth groups where you can process some of this. We do things like The Refuge. We do things like Echo. We do things like all these places where we have communities coming together so you can process this, this movement that maybe God is bringing you on, but to also realize you're going to be okay. Now, I did a little extra credit homework for this sermon, um, and this you don't have to pay anything for. This is free. Um, I... I went down a deep research rabbit hole around Left Behind, which uh, I would not recommend. But here, I, I'm going to tell you because I spent way too much time for it to never get used in a sermon. And uh, so here's the thing. They made the Left Behind uh, books into four video games. Isn't that cool? Left Behind Eternal Forces. Um, okay, now here's the thing. I have four facts I would like to share with you about the Left Behind video game, none of which have to do with this sermon. But here's the thing. The first one, you can play this game in multiplayer. Which, okay, get this. Okay, you can either play as the redeemed forces who after the rapture has happened, you're trying to convert people, or you can play as the Antichrist, um, which it, <laughs> for a video game that was marketed as a, like, a Christian video game to help people grow in their relationship with God, honestly, what happens when the Antichrist wins? Like, how do you process that? What is, like, that is a forced deconstruction time. Um, that it was also mildly sexist. Um, I, I'd like to read for you actual words, like verbiage, in the video game. This is what they said. You had this group of people that were trying to convert others. They walk up to this woman, and they say, Sorry, Sally, we'd like to convert you, but there's only one room for one more, and we all know girls can't build houses. <laughs> oh, please don't quote me out of context. Uh, it was also a rather violent game that in the name of the one who said, turn the other cheek and love your enemies, everybody had a machine gun, uh, which <laughs> I'm not sure where you find that in Revelation. But, uh, and then th this is probably the most obvious part is that the battleground for all the video games is the heathen city of New York. Um, so we, for, for the Podrishioners in New York, you know it's true. Um, <laughs> But here's the thing. So there were like the good guys trying to convert people, but then there were, there were the enemies. And the enemies were three different groups of people, which I just found fascinating. So it was either college-trained secularists. We all know you can't trust them. Uh, Foul-mouthed rock stars. <laughs> and then the third group was devils. So somehow those are the triumvirate of evil. I, I Honestly, it's fascinating. Um, but... Uh, I digress. Okay, so here's the thing. It's kind of funny, but like there's an inherent danger here. And the, the danger is that it's possible to have that theological position, and I know because it happened to me, sink so deeply into our psyche that you stop questioning its premise. And the premise is that God's ultimate plan is about evacuation, that he's scrapping this whole project. The, the, it, the premise is that the right question to ask is, will I go to heaven when I die? Versus what I would say is ultimately the more biblically based question is, will I be ready for heaven when it arrives? And so, so, we, so to the degree that that sinks in, the, the challenge, and I think what's at stake, is that it can handcuff our experience of earth now. Because if I think that God's goal is to scrap all this, what, what, what do I care how this all turns out? 
What's the problem with any of this? And so as we've been doing the last couple of weeks, we're like we're trying to imagine heaven. But if heaven is kind of this other earthly place and I'm just trying to get out of here to get there, then heaven, like to try and imagine it feels like, like the analogy I heard is it's like trying to play the piano while wearing oven mitts. It, it just doesn't work. Like it, I can try as much as I can to imagine this, but it's so disassociated with my experience that it, like those practices become really hard because I can't connect it with real life. Which begs the question, where did this come from? Where did this perspective come from, which naturally leads us to Plato? Um, and not like the stuff you play with, like the philosopher. And for, for, for those of you that are actual philosophers in this room, I am just going to apologize. I plan on oversimplifying and way overgeneralizing the, the thoughts of Plato. So I'm sorry. But here's the deal. What we're, what we're going to look at is mostly how did Plato get interpreted by the earliest Christian theologians? Because Plato was writing four to five hundred years before Jesus. And what, one of the things he would do is he had this story, and the, the best way I can think of explaining the story is like when, I, when we put our kids to bed, sometimes we, we do like shadow puppets. You guys do that sometimes? Like we're, I don't know, I don't know what that is, like an alligator or something. Um, and my kids try and get me to do a bunch of them, but I, I just know alligator. Um, and, and so he told this story called the allegory of the cave. And he, here's how Plato described the situation. You've got people that are chained up next to each other and their back is to a wall, and the only place they can look their entire life is forward at another cave wall. So they can't see anything behind them, but what's behind them, they just don't know, is this bridge, and then behind that bridge is a fire. And so what these people that are locked down here, all they see their entire life is the shadow on the wall in front of them of the people that are walking over that bridge that they don't know is there. And so, so Plato's point to this is to say that the shadow, the thing that those prisoners thought was real, that's the material world. But what's real is what's behind it, the philosophy. He calls it the forms, the universal templates. It's, it's the, the, the thing that is the philosophical underpinning to the real world is what he calls it. And, and what happened for Christian theologians is it led to a dualism. And the dualism was that the material world was bad. And the spiritual world is good. What, what, what this meant was for the earliest followers of Plato, they said things like this. The lowest level of reality is matter. The lowest level of reality is matter. And if the goal is to escape matter, then the goal is to get away from all of this. And uh, look at this quote from Plato and tell me if this reminds you of anything. We ought to fly away from earth to heaven as quickly as we can. And to fly away is to become like God as far as this is possible. And to become like him is to become holy, just, and wise. Does that sound more like the rapture or revelation? Rapture, rapture. yeah, that's, that's not rhetorical. Um, sounds more like rapture. And the challenge is that there's some uh, significant theological ramifications that kind of seeped into some of the earliest uh, theologians of the Christian church. And the, the ramification of it is that our hope for heaven becomes a non-earthly spiritual place for spiritual beings filled with spiritual activities and is disconnected with our human experience, which, I mean, you, you saw a bunch of, quite a bit of that language in the video, uh, which for me is why the concept of that version of heaven where it's 
a spiritual place for spiritual beings filled with spiritual activities, it, it's not very passion-inducing for me. Like, if it's an eternal church service, I'm a pastor and I don't want to go. Um, like, it, I, I think it, it can lead to this sense of like, really? It's, I just wear a robe all day and there's a harp and I don't play a harp, but, and like, I like playing sports, but playing sports in a robe would be weird, or I don't know how you go swimming, or what if it gets stained, like nobody ever talks about tide in heaven. It's like, it's a totally foreign experience, and, and yet revelation is earthy to its core. Revelation is earthy to its core, and what's even more fascinating is that biblically, there's never been a human without a body. There's never been a human without a body. Even at the beginning, God creates the human and then breathes life, breathes his spirit into him. So this combination of Christianity and Plato's thought has been coined as Christoplatonism, which Try spelling that one. Um, but, but the basic idea is that there's been this merging and some of our job as people of faith is to figure out how do we disentangle some of this so that we're actually following and getting hope and passion by the version of heaven that we see in Revelation. Because I am convinced that God's plan is about restoration, not evacuation. That God's ultimate plan is about restoring not evacuating us. That God's ultimate plan is about the question, will I be ready for heaven when it comes? That God is not scrapping this place, which is really good news for all us scrappers. <laughs> like, it's really good news because God's not giving up on this place, this creation, which includes us. That God is not giving up on us, that he is about making all things new. He's about restoring it from the smallest to the biggest, from all of creation. And he actually says, I want you to do it with me, which is good news. And I think what's interesting is that restoration begins by focusing on the presence of God over the place where we go. That thinking about heaven is much more about the presence of God than it is about a place. And so this is where we come back to Revelation 21. So let's look at it again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place, his skene. The, the, the word skene is the word in the Old Testament that gets translated tabernacle. So God's tabernacle, this place where God dwelled in the Old Testament with the people, is among the people, and he'll be with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. Because I think that the goal ultimately is that the dwelling of God in fullness is the promise of heaven. That we, I feel like we get little inklings of it where it's like, oh, you, you know, it felt like God was there in such a real way. But in heaven, that will be every moment. Every moment of every day, like I can't go here and feel like he's more present. I can't go to church and feel like he's more present than he is at work. And, and it's as if God is saying, I want to move into the neighborhood, is how Eugene Peterson translates this, this same verse. That God moved in to the neighborhood. And he has been in the business of doing this in small ways throughout scripture. Which I, I want to give you just kind of a brief overview of where you see this this idea of God with us throughout Scripture. And it, it starts in the Garden of Eden, where God is walking with Adam and Eve because he wants to be with 
his people, and you see it from there in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, because if there's one thing that is consistent and true in their story, it's that God is with them no matter what they screw up in the process. And then the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt, but what we see is that God hears their cries and he's with them. And then they're in the wilderness and the tabernacle is built and the tabernacle is like this big tent. And in the middle of this tent is the place called the Holy of Holies. And the dimensions of this Holy of Holies are as wide, as long, as as high. It's a cube. So it's this cube space that people could go in. But when the tabernacle was built, they said that the glory of God came in to the Holy of Holies. And the glory, that this word glory in Hebrew is the word kavod, which is super fun. And the word kavod technically means, literally means heavy, weighty. That what happened in the Holy of Holies was that the weighty presence of God was dwelling with his people. And then they left the wilderness, they entered Jerusalem, they built a temple, and in the temple was also a holy of holies, where the kavod, the weighty presence of God, was there with his people, and God is with them. And then we get to the book of Isaiah, and in Isaiah we get the promise of the Messiah, and the Messiah is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so God continues this desire of, I want to be with you, I want to be with you, I want to be with you. And then the people go into exile. They leave the temple. They leave where the Holy of Holy is. They leave the Skene. They think they leave the Kavod. They think they leave the glory of God. But when the people are in exile, look at what Ezekiel says. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. And they will be my people that... When we are in exile, we are not in exile from God. That when we are in exile, we are not in exile from God. And the last verse of Ezekiel is so beautiful. Look at the name of the city. And the name of the city from that time on will be, the Lord is there. Which is the precursor to the city coming down in Revelation 21. Because the most true thing about that city is that the Lord is is there. And then when we get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up, look at how John describes Jesus. The word became flesh and made his skene among us. He tabernacled among us. He became this new holy of holies in our midst where the kavod of God could live as a person walking around. And if, as, as he interacted with people, it was as if they were walking next to the holy of holies. And then in Revelation, where we were just looking at in, verse, in chapter 21, there's no temple. There's no temple anywhere. But what's fascinating is that in verse 15 and 16 of Revelation 21, it gives us the dimensions of this city. And the dimensions are the same width and length and height. So what shape is it? It's a cube. That the city that came down from heaven is the new holy of holies because everywhere where we walk is going to be soaked in the presence of God. Because the holy of holies is not just a place or a person, but it's a presence and it's the presence that will be all-encompassing that we can't escape even if we wanted to, which is good news. And friends, that is the hope of heaven. The hope of heaven is that one day we will not be able to get away from the presence of God because it will be all that is and all that will ever be. Amen? Mm. And while there is this future hope, 
I want to wrap up our, times by our time by talking about some ramifications for what that means now. And whenever a preacher says wrap up, just know that's 15-ish minutes. Um, and if you're in the front row, the rock is coming. So just be alert. Um, now, here's the deal. There is a final hope. But there is a hope now. That God, uh, God says through Jesus that the kingdom of God is now. That my kingdom has come and I long for it to come on earth as it is in heaven. And he wants to use his image bearers to be a part of that. Look at how Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That God has a plan for how he is going to use your work to be a part of his kingdom. That it's as if when Jesus was resurrected, it was the opening bell of the renewing of creation. And God is saying that my plan is that starting with Jesus, I'm going to begin renewing creation. And it starts by renewing you so that you can partner with me in renewing the rest of the world. That God has a plan for his people. And our job is to learn what that plan is and submit to it and walk in it because Jesus has a plan for your life. And it's not just something to make you feel good. It's a plan to restore everything. That God wants to make all things new. And the caveat is at the same time, we can't bring the kingdom. That, that there's oftentimes been some misperceptions of, well, because God says, I want to partner with you, that we think that by our own will and our own work, I can make this happen. And that what, if there's one thing clear from Revelation 21, it's that there will be a cataclysmic and cosmic event when God ultimately makes everything right. And he will purge everything inconsistent with his love, his joy, his peace, his goodness, and everything will be summed up with the love of Jesus. And that is the day we hope for when every square inch is defined by the love of God. Amen. And yet, and yet... God has a plan for us, and he has work for us to do. Look at how Peter describes this in 2 Peter. You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And speed its coming. If, if this is all God and we're just waiting for it to happen, how is it that living holy and godly lives can somehow speed up this coming. And this is where we get into some mystery, my friends, because what, what God is asking us to do is to walk in obedience as we imitate Jesus and to believe that through that, God is going to bring his kavod, his weighty presence in places where it has not been. And, and I think that as we do the work of the Lord and as we live holy and godly lives, that somehow our life and our labor for the kingdom of heaven is like a rock that gets thrown in the water. And when a rock gets thrown in the water, it creates ripples. And what's amazing is that those ripples start expanding farther and farther and farther away until eventually they're imperceptible. I can't see them. I can't distinguish them from the rest of the water. But the 
the truth that believers of Jesus need to believe is that he's going to do something with that. That even though it looks like the energy from the rock going in the water is gone, that ultimately God is going to use that and our labor is not in vain. Look at how Mother Teresa describes this. She says that I alone cannot change the world, but I can cast a stone across the water to create many ripples. So my question today is what is the stone that you need to throw in the water? to participate in the flow of what God is wanting to do? What is the stone that you need to throw in the water to participate in the flow that was inaugurated when Jesus rose again? And I wonder if, for some of us, the stone that we need to throw in the water is to choose to forgive when we'd rather not. I wonder if for some of us, the stone we need to throw in the water is to choose to extravagantly love our enemy. I wonder if the stone that some of us need to choose is to care for creation and actually believe that God's not scrapping this, that God has a plan for this, and maybe the stone you need to throw is to care for somebody on the margins who normally you just ignore. And maybe the stone you need to throw is to be generous with what you have. Maybe the stone you need to throw is even though you'd rather not do it, you're going to choose to be patient with your kids. Maybe the stone that some of us need to throw is rather than just feeling shame and guilt over that sin we've struggled with for years, maybe the stone we need to throw is to say, God, I did it today. I made it through today. And to to actually throw the stone of congratulating yourself for small victories and saying, God, I made it. I didn't think I would. And we throw the stones and through that, we believe that our labor is not in vain. And it actually grows. It's exponential. And it's exponential in a mysterious way because if I throw one stone, it can make some ripples. But if 10 of us throw a stone... And a hundred of us throw a stone. If a, if a thousand of us throw a stone, if a million of us throw a stone, can you imagine the tidal wave of the love of God that will break down walls that need to be broken down? Because God is not wasting this. He's not wasting the work that you're doing. And I think that as we start to have an awareness of the fact that throwing a stone in the water can actually move something in the kingdom of God, we can radically hope for a day that will one day come when all of this will be renewed, when we can believe that there will come a day when mental illness will be gone. That, that we will have new bodies and body shame will be gone. That, that racism will one day be gone. That sexism will gone. Be, that nationalism will be gone. That tribalism will one day be no more. And I wonder if we can start to believe that as we throw our rocks in that somehow God will swallow up and utterly redefine everything in the kavod of God someday. And so, we say, come Lord Jesus, come, but we also throw our stone in the water. We throw our stone in the water, whatever God is calling you to throw in the water. Because God says, your labor is not in vain, and that in some mysterious way, it actually speeds up the coming of God. You guys thought I was going to throw this, didn't you? (laughs) 
So Woodland Hills, my friends, God has important work for us to do. And at the same time, God has the most beautiful hope for heaven we could ever imagine. And it's not about evacuation, it's about restoration, and he's got a plan for you to be a part of it. So, would you stand with me? And as you stand, I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come forward. Uh, If there's anything you could use prayer for, we, we believe that one of the stones we can throw is to pray for our brothers and sisters. And uh, so uh, there'll be prayer ministers uh, at the back there. You can come and talk to them. We'd love to be praying with you. If, uh, if, if you've never been introduced to this Jesus who says, I am making all things new, he would love to make all things new for you. And these folks would love to pray with you about that. So as we close, uh, I- I'm going to invite you to just stretch out your hands and receive this benediction. And now... May the God who says, I am making all things new, breathe life and hope and freedom and joy into the parched places of your soul. And may the God who says, your labor is not in vain, encourage you and give you commitment to throw the stone he's given you to throw and to watch the tidal wave grow. And may the God of peace be with you as you go. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Have a great one.